Hello and welcome to another episode of the Novum Insightful um, and it gives me um, great pleasure to welcome today uh, Jim McDonald of Attestant. He's probably one of the, the better informed people in the sort of UK tech ecosystem on Ethereum version 2 and wider developments in the Ethereum ecosystem. Effectively, uh, provides for institutions and institutional sort of size check people uh, the ability to do Ethereum version 2 as a service. Um, so we're going to unpack everything that's been going on with Attestant, Ethereum version 2, and because this is being recorded uh, the week after the, the so-called London fork has happened. Um, I thought it was the perfect time to reach out to Jim and find out, talk about everything that's going on in Ethereum. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So I guess we're going to dive straight into the topic of the moment, which is the London fork. What does the London fork mean and and What's actually been going on in it? So the London hard fork actually has several elements in it, but the most important one as far as we have seen in terms of press coverage and general interest is a piece called 1559. Now, 1559 is one of the EIPs that was placed in the London hard fork. And what it does is it changes the way the gas is paid for inside Ethereum transactions. So every transaction has to be paid for. The payment is a mix of uh, what we would call disposable resources. So things like CPU and network bandwidth, which are used, but then obviously available afterward, but also permanent resources. So things like storage. So there has always been a, a question of how best to balance that, how best to charge for each individual action and operation that occurs on the Ethereum network, considering that every single transaction operation, A, has to be stored forever if there's a piece of storage written, and also B, that each operation, each CPU operation, for example, has to be run on every single validating node out there. So, you know, there's significant costs involved. And what 1559 has tried to do is find a way of changing the mechanism by which gas price is determined. So if you imagine that the Ethereum block space is empty to begin with and someone wants to add a transaction to it, well, as we mentioned, the transaction has a cost in terms of gas, but gas is this sort of nebulous idea. It's a, an arbitrary accounting standard. What it doesn't map to directly is the actual cost in terms of if I'm sending the transaction, what do I pay? So my payment is in terms of Ether, and that payment is based in terms of what's called a gas price. So if my gas price was seven, then for every unit of gas that I used, I'd pay seven to, to cover that. Most of the time, gas prices are based around what's called gigaway. There are one billion gigaway in one ether. What has changed with 1559 is that we have recognized that block space is at a premium. In fact, for the last roughly three years, there have always been transactions pending, waiting to go into the Ethereum block space, but there hasn't been space for them. So we have what have traditionally been called gas price wars. Someone wants their transaction to go in, so they'll pay more. The next person also wants their transaction to go in, so they'll pay more again. Our 
costs for gas have become really, really high. A simple transaction, a transfer of ether might suddenly cost $10 rather than a cent. And this has been a bit of a problem. So what happens now is we have something called a base fee. The base fee is an amount of gas that is available that is a, a maximum base fee. The other part is a tip. And the tip is a standard number, again, that will be fed off to the miner. The really important part about this, though, is the base fee changes. So in one block, the base fee may be 10 gig away. If that block is very busy and filled, the next block is going to be a little bit more expensive. The base fee will increase to, say, 11 or 12 gig away. No one gets to choose what the, the next base fee is going to be. Base fee is purely dependent on the base fee of the current block and how full it is. In times when... Life is busy, lots of transactions going on, the base fee will increase, the base fee will increase again and again, until it gets to the stage where people decide they're not willing to pay that amount of money to put transactions into the blocks. At that point in time, the transactions will stop coming in, the blocks won't be as full, the base fee will drop down again. So it's kind of a moderating mechanism. One of the most interesting features of 1559 is that it has fixed a long-standing problem in Ethereum around security. If we look at, for example, Bitcoin, Bitcoin has what's called a capped maximum supply. Easy, it's simple, it's easy for people to understand. However, it does present a long-term problem. How do you pay for security? On the one hand, we have to give miners money because otherwise they won't do the work. On the other hand, it would be nice to have some idea of a cap total supply so that we don't have a runaway coin in terms of having no idea of, of, of how much it's worth in the future. 1559 burns the base fee. Now, this is really, really important because if we have a high enough base fee or a large enough number of transactions, the amount of ether that is burned balances out the amount of ether that is generated for our two ether block reward. So we have a non-capped but stable supply, and we also have payment for our miners. So by having both of those things at the same time, it's a really, really useful and powerful system. Uh, we're seeing around 5,000 ether burned per day. Um, so we're burning just over a third of the, uh, the total amount of ether that is being issued. This is only sort of one of the steps on the path. Uh, the overall issuance of Ethereum 1 is still pretty high. And that's one of the things that as we move to the Ethereum 2 system and we move to proof of stake rather than proof of work, we will, we will start to address that piece too. But as mentioned, you know, everything looking pretty good and it does put Ethereum on a very, very firm foundation for the future. Amazing um, summary, Jim, and uh, a lot going on there. I guess the intention is to reduce the gas fee. It, from a sort of layman's perspective, when you're still messing around on Ethereum mainnet, um, it seems that sort of the gas fee hasn't reduced massively. Is there a reason for this, or do you, do you think it's sort of... So the, the idea that... 1559 would reduce gas fees is, is sort of a, a little bit of a, shall we say, a popular misconception. It was never designed to make things cheaper. 
ultimately, we are still a market-driven system. Um, however, what it tries to do is try to provide a much more stable base. So what we're trying to avoid is often these sort of fee auction systems where everyone tries to, to up the amount of money that the last person put in. What we want to see is a system where we have the excess capacity, so we have the ability to put in lots of transactions if there's something happening immediately. But apart from that, it will drop down. So instead, what we're saying is someone might say, okay, I can see what the base fee is at the moment. I want this to go in within the next few blocks. So I'm happy to put in a base fee that may be a little bit higher. As a result of that, I will not be having to second guess everyone else. Now, there is a little bit of that still in the system. But what we can do is we can provide a much smoother curve by this base fee. We mentioned if a block is full, a base fee will increase, but it will only increase a little bit each block. So we won't see a, a doubling of the base fee from one point to another. Um, recently, we've seen gas bikes through things like NFT auctions. So someone says, you know, at midday, we are starting an auction and everyone puts their bid in now. And when that happens, everyone floods onto the network with transactions, they're all fighting each other, trying to get in. By having this base fee system, the idea is that we will, A, have more capacity for those systems to work, for those, um, those rash of transactions kind of thing to occur. And we will also have the ability to say, well, okay, but you know that your base fee can only increase 2x at most over the next 13 blocks or whatever it might be, because we know that we'll only ramp up a certain amount each block. Okay, so so that that makes um, a lot of sense, and and uh, hopefully we'll see um, fewer major irregular gas um, gas fees. Absolutely, I mean, and it's worth just mentioning. Yeah. One other thing is that this is an ongoing process. So although fifteen fifty nine is now in, there are very few wallets that support it. So that's okay for the moment. We always, of course, had to put the, the feature in place on the network before people could use it. Um, but we do expect over the next few weeks and months to see more and more transactions starting to use those that, that benefit of, of, of having 1559, having this separate base fee and, and tip. Yeah. And then in terms of the, the so-called, some people call it deflationary mechanism, um, obviously, like it's inflation going up uh, less highly as you explained uh sort of or, or um less dramatically um so down from i think you said 4.5 to 2 or thereabouts that, yeah. um what's going on there what, what what why is ethereum being burnt and and what's happening in in that process well the the, the exciting thing about the deflationary side of things is that um we, we, we live in a world right now where Ether is not going to become a deflationary currency anytime soon because the block reward of two Ether per block is, is pretty high. You're seeing around 13, 13 and a half thousand Ether generated every day. This is new issuance and that's what the, the 1559 burn has to fight against. However, um, where what comes into play now is what we call the merge. In more layman's terms, moving Ethereum from being a proof-of-work cryptocurrency to a proof-of-stake cryptocurrency. Now, proof-of-stake gives us a number of benefits. There are some, some fantastic ones around the environment, for example. We're no longer burning lots of CPU cycles to, to generate security. But one of the really interesting things around the total supply of Ether is that the issuance 
for proof of stake is a fraction of that for proof of work. So we move from a system that is creating 13,000 and burning 5,000 for a net of plus 8,000 to something that's generating roughly, like say, 1,100, still burning 5,000, which gives us a net of negative 3,900 ether per day. So this is the point at which we will expect to see deflation kick in. Yeah, really interesting. And and then, Jim, sort of in terms of sort of how you're envisaging um, sort of version two is going to improve the system. Obviously, we talked about the environmental benefit, and I think they're sort of well known. Um, sort of beyond that, what, what what other sort of benefits do you think version two is going to give users? So if we think about Ethereum as we as we know and love it today, it has two kind of aspects. One is that it has smart contracts. It has the ability to store state. So it does stuff. On the other hand, we have the security piece, the proof of work, which is where the security of the chain is built, where we get things like finality come in. All of that's you know, great and, and useful and handy. We mentioned the environmental area. Another big one, though, is uh, what we would call economic finality. So a lot of people here in the in the blockchain world about things like 51% attacks. The short version of that is that if you have two different chains and one is moving a little bit faster than the other, so two forks or two different versions of the same chain, the one that's moving the faster will eventually win. The problem with that is that any block mined in proof of work, all of the finality that we talk about is probabilistic finality. Um, there's always a chance that someone can catch up. Uh, if someone sneakily unveils a new hyper supercomputer, and as a result of that, it can generate blocks 10 times as fast as anything else out there, then we could, theoretically, you could go back in time, you could rewrite bits of the, of the Ethereum history. And because of the way the chain works, that would be fine, it would accept it. So although we have finality in Ethereum in proof of work, it is what we would call probabilistic. There's always a chance that someone can change it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, it's 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 so incredibly exciting. And um, when uh, this all takes place next year, it'll be fascinating to see what actually ends up happening. Where where do you see this um, upgrade leads the sort of um, the layer twos that are rising in popularity, the the optimistic roll-ups and the, the likes of Polygonmatic and that kind of thing? So ultimately, we have, if you will, two ways of, of scaling. Um, we have something like sharding, which allows us to spread out horizontally. It gives us benefits, but it also gives us problems. So if we have information on shard one and want to talk to shard two, we need to find some way of communicating between the shards. That can be, there are lots of ways of doing it, but none of them are, are desperately clean and they all have trade-offs. The, the other way of scaling is, is if you will, through layers um, vertically. So what I would anticipate seeing over a long enough period of time is that all of the transactions on Ethereum one, as we know and love it today, will end up being roll-up transactions, zero-knowledge proofs. They will be the items that secure layer two. The idea of, of this, quite simply, is that layer two can have lots of transactions running on it. 
And then all it has to do is generate a relatively small, hopefully proof or roll up or similar of some of its information and place that on layer one. Layer one is, as we said, what we think of as Ethereum one. Fascinating. And, and what, what do you make, Jim, of the sort of claim um, that proof of stake is less democratic than proof of work, just because it's a system where those with the most money kind of write the rules um, slightly more so than the existing proof of work system? You know, it's, it's kind of a resource question. Um, can you run proof of work with less money than proof of stake? Sure, but you won't have any real say in the matter. Um, the the reality is, and 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 the, and the other point is ultimately is that miners or validators, proof of work, proof of stake, we are all, if you will, subservient to the users of the network, which is the way around it should be. And I think fifteen fifty nine in the recent London hard fork was an example of that. Fifteen fifty nine reduces the amount of money that miners obtain because some of that money is burned. So stuff that was a tip and go went to the miner now gets burned. As a result of that, miners were understandably apprehensive about fifteen fifty nine. However, they did not have the power to be able to unilaterally stop it, and that is very important because ultimately it comes down to who places what value on which chain. If we'd imagine that there was a chain, if there was a fork, and by the way, there, there was meant to be, um, it was spectacularly unsuccessful if it really happened because it never mined a block as far as we can see. But the impact ultimately for miners was that they recognized that actually they are still doing very, very well. And again, if we look at this in, say, for example, the terms of US dollar, the increase in Ether's price over the last week or so, as 1559 has rolled out, has more than offset any funds they may have lost as a result of 1559 lowering their Ether transaction fee. So again, it's good for the infrastructure as a whole, it's good for the community as a whole, and that worked out really well. I don't see that changing with proof of stake. Proof of stake adds work for Ethereum to validate as they're not being paid anymore, but they, it adds work. Mining, validating, none of these things are ways of making money. What we are being is compensated for the work we are doing. Ultimately, we are subservient to the needs of the chain and its users, and that should always be, be part of it. Is one less democratic than the other? It very much depends. You you could argue this back and forth in, in all sorts of different ways. You have to define value. You have to define power. There's a, there's a lot in there that is very tricky to, to unpick. And ultimately, as with many things with blockchains, it's a social question rather than a technical one. Um, I don't believe that proof of stake will have a significant rich gets richer impact. To be clear, if someone had 0.1 Ether, they could put that 0.1 Ether into a staking pool. And if they own, I don't know, a tenth of a percent of the network today, then a year from now, if everyone is staking, then they will own a tenth of a percent of the total supply of Ether. So you could argue, you know, absolute terms, does it change? Yeah, the numbers move. But equally, if everyone's doing the same thing, then the person with a million Ether is no better off than the person with one Ether in terms of percentage change. Amazing. Well, well, Jim, we, we've covered a lot of ground here today. Uh, we will suddenly look to 
get you on again to discuss these topics and as Ethereum version 2 comes nearer I'm sure it's gonna um, your expertise will will be invaluable to, to many people so um, um, thank you very much for the discussion I suddenly learned a lot from it so, so thank you I'm sure our listeners will Toby thank you very much indeed for having me on